This week, Pacific Drilling chooses ad hoc group proposal. Windstream and Aurelius spend three days in court, and Albertsons and Safeway note holders exchange letters. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lung. And I'm Teresa Lee, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, Mark Fisher sits down with distressed debt analysts Nick Williams and Yashwan Chunderu to discuss the state of the retail sector, specifically how it's affecting Mall Reed, CBL, and Associates. Reorg actively covers department stores such as JCPenney and Sears, and also center of the mall retailers such as Claire's. So stay tuned. It's Sunday, July 29th. After nearly nine months in bankruptcy, Pacific Drilling's independent directors have elected to move forward with a plan proposed by the ad hoc group, while also seeking to permit Quantum Pacific to prosecute its own completing plan. At a hearing on Thursday, Al Togut of Togut, Siegel & Siegel, counsel to the debtors, announced that the independent directors concluded that the debtors will file a plan of reorganization based on the ad hoc group's proposal. The decision was made in the morning that day, according to Togut. As previously reported, the debtors were considering competing proposals submitted by majority shareholder Quantum Pacific and certain SSCF lenders on the one hand and the ad hoc group of debt holders on the other. Importantly, because the independent directors believe the QP proposal is also, quote, very attractive, the debtors requested a modification of their exclusivity rights solely to permit QP to file and prosecute its own plan alongside the ad hoc group plan as adopted by the debtors. The debtors believe that this would be the, quote, best approach and the, quote, fairest way to deal with both groups that acted in the most diligent way in trying to reach a consensual plan proposal, added Togut. Judge Michael Wiles granted the debtors' exclusivity extension motion, but declined to rule on the debtors' request to permit QP to simultaneously prosecute its competing plan proposal until after he sees, quote, additional details on both proposals. Togut warns that if the court denies the debtor's request, the debtors will, quote, have to go back to the drawing board. The debtors intend to file their plan promptly, but may need until July 31st, asserted Togut. Windstream, U.S. Bank, and Aurelius Capital were in court for three days this week. At issue is whether Windstream's 2015 spinoff of CSNL, which later became Unity, was a sale and leaseback transaction in violation of Windstream's debt covenants and whether Windstream's November 2017 note exchange properly waived any alleged event of default relating to the spinoff. On Monday, the trial kicked off with former Windstream general counsel John Fletcher testifying on matters relating to Windstream's master lease with Unity. David LaRue, an accounting witness for U.S. Bank, asserted that the spinoff qualified under U.S. GAAP as a sale-leaseback transaction. And John Eichler, senior vice president and controller of Windstream, testified that the spinoff had to be accounted for as a financing transaction because it did not meet the requirements for sale-leaseback accounting. On day two, Windstream CFO Robert Gunderman testified on matters relating to both the 2015 Unity spinoff and the November 2017 notes exchange and consent solicitation. Day two also saw Aurelius Managing Director Dennis Brito acknowledging that Aurelius had not sought an injunction to stop the November 2017 exchange offer. Finally, on Wednesday, Witness testimony concluded, with Citigroup Managing Director Stephen Cheeseman testifying about the events leading up to Windstream's November 2017 exchange offer and consent solicitation, 
and the manner in which the transaction exchange ratios were set. Dr. Phaeton Sabri of Nira Consulting offered testimony on behalf of Aurelius regarding the economic net benefits of the exchange offers. And the final witness to testify was Michael McCarty, chairman and CEO of boutique investment bank M.M. Dillon & Co., who offered an opinion supporting Windstream's position regarding the appropriateness of the exchange ratio. Oral argument is scheduled for Tuesday, July 31st at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Separately, Windstream's efforts to push out near-term maturities and manage its current debt load through an exchange offer continues. On Friday, the company announced that $407 million, or almost 83%, of the company's 2020 unsecured notes have been tendered into the exchange. Windstream also pushed back the early tender deadline to July 31st and reduced the minimum participation threshold for the 2020s to 85%. The fight between Albertson's own Safeway and Safeway's note holders continued this week. Reorg obtained the letter sent by Safeway's 7.25% 2031 note holders to the trustee, contending that an event of default has occurred. In the letter, Albertson's had disclosed its response to the letter, though not the letter itself, Lawrence Wee of Paul Weiss, on behalf of the minority note holders, states that the Safeway default stems from its breach of the negative covenant in Section 4.7 of the indenture, which places limitations on Safeway's ability to incur liens to secure indebtedness. Safeway breached Section 4.7 in 2015 by incurring liens securing an ABL and a term loan facility that were not permitted liens, as defined in the indenture, we argued. Albertsons responded to the letter on Monday, saying that the, quote, Minority holders understand that the liens granted by Safeway in connection with the Albertsons Safeway credit facilities initially entered into January 30th, 2015, were and are compliant with the indenture's terms, and that this is why the, quote, minority holders have not until now suggested that the incurrence of the liens to secure such indebtedness breach the indenture. The letter adds that Safeway's counsel is willing to meet with counsel for the minority holders to further discuss the issue. Our own Reorg Covenants team analyzed the issue and determined that Albertsons is likely unable to equally and rateably secure Safeway's notes under existing term loan and secured notes credit documents. On the island of Puerto Rico, in an omnibus hearing on Wednesday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain deferred decision on some of the most compelling issues facing the court. The Promesa Oversight Board's motions to dismiss lawsuits filed by the administration of Governor Ricardo Rosseo and the island legislature challenging Promesa's actions and authority related to the fiscal plan and budget. Judge Swain said she had to, quote, reflect on arguments put forth from the various parties, given they go fundamentally to the ability of the Commonwealth government to operate in the future and Promesa to undertake the task given it by Congress. Also in Puerto Rico on Tuesday, Governor Rosseo reiterated that he would not attend a Wednesday meeting of the U.S. House Committee on Natural Resources without an apology over a, quote, insulting tweet sent by the committee announcing his invitation. He cast doubt that a plan being discussed to federalize PREPA will be enacted. At the Wednesday meeting, witnesses discussed possible legislative solutions to resolve what they called the ongoing mismanagement and disarray at the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority. Rosseo did provide a written statement to the committee, which stated that the proposed federalization of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority is a mistake, and federal control of the process to reform the public utility is, quote, unnecessary and inappropriate. Other top red stories of the week were, number one, from Reorg Covenants Prime. 
American Tire Distributors, Term Loan, and ABL currently permit significant transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries. Number two, Monotronics Note Holder, Lender Advisors continue to complete due diligence. Number three, VER Technologies Plan approved. And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Welcome back, Jim. Well, thank you, Teresa. It's good to be back. I do regret missing 105 degree temperatures in Houston, but I did enjoy some massive thunderstorms and power outages over in Woodford County, Kentucky. Woodford County is, of course, the home to any number of bourbon distilleries. And fortunately, as any moonshiner could tell you, electricity is not required to brew up any of that good old Mountain Dew. At any rate, some of y'all, some of us, might be in the mood for a fortifying belt or two over the next couple of weeks, which will be dominated by, you guessed it, earnings. Always a lot of fun. We start, however, on Monday, July 30th, with a confirmation hearing in Enduro. Tuesday, July 31st, brings oral arguments in Windstream and a PPA rejection evidentiary hearing in First Energy. And earnings, plenty of them. iHeart, Intelsat, Scorpio Tankers, Pioneer Energy Services, and Frontier Communications, all of which will also be conducting their calls. First Energy also reports, with a call scheduled for Wednesday. And also on Wednesday, August 1st, we have results from Cengage, APX Group, and Legacy Reserves, along with results in a call from Chesapeake, which just this past week unloaded its position in the Utica Shale for $2 billion. And it also revised its guidance for nat gas and NGL production lower while revising oil volumes higher. Tells you something about the state of the hydrocarbons market in the USA. We also have earnings from Hornbeck Offshore, a favorite of mine for the, for the snapshot of activity in the Gulf of Mexico it provides. And in courtside action, we have the DS hearing for Gibson, the guitar maker. Thursday, August 2nd, Hornbeck and Legacy are holding their calls. There's an omnibus hearing in iHeart, and we have earnings from Teva, Bombardier, Avon, Monotronics, Bristow, California Resources, and Altice USA. And on Friday, August 3rd, a bid procedure hearing in First Energy, along with Bristow's call. And that's all from me. And just remember, tap water and ice cubes are the only thing you really want to put into your bourbon, unless, of course, you're making a julep, which calls for mint, sugar, and crushed ice. Back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, our director of credit research, Mark Fisher, sat down with our financial analyst team to discuss CBL and Associates and the effect that distress in the retail sector is having on the company's operations and the industry as a whole. So with me today are distressed debt analysts Nick Williams and Yashwan Chinduro. It should come as no surprise to people that retailers are closing stores. At Reorg, we wanted to see what effect these store closures are having on malls. So we recently initiated coverage on a mall rate, CBL and Associates. It's a particularly interesting name for us because CBL owns about 65 malls and leases spaces in those malls to retail tenants, and a bunch of these tenants are names that we already cover. Companies like JCPenney, Claire's, Bonton, Sears, uh, and many more over the years that um, have either filed for bankruptcy or, uh, or got pretty close. Uh, so today we're going to spend a little time discussing the mall ecosystem and the knock-on impact that distress in the brick-and-mortar space can have on the ultimate owners of uh, the commercial real estate. So Nick, with that, if, if you could start us off and just talk through uh, some trends that CBL has seen. Sure. So the first kind of key trend that, that we want to look at uh, for a company like CBL is its occupancy rate. Uh, you know, that's the percentage of its malls. Um, percentage of the square foot in its malls, which are 
uh, which are leased to tenants. Uh, CBL has done re reasonably well at maintaining occupancy rates at around the 90% level, which is a little bit lower than kind of the sector as a whole. Uh, however, it seems like the way they've done this is by really pretty aggressively cutting the rents that they ask from tenants. So as an example of this, in the most recent quarter, the company was able to release space where the lease was expiring at a negative spread of 16%. In other words, what that means is where a company was previously able to lease a store for a theoretical $100 per square foot, it's now leasing that same space at $84 per square foot. So that's a pretty significant, uh, obviously, decrease. And that was kind of really what initially attracted us to, to take a look at the company was kind of, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a big headline number. Uh, so we, do, we dove in and uh, uh, wanted to go from there to, to kind of learn a little bit more about the space. Great. Um, so let's let's look at it from the other side, uh, Yash. Um, you know, we've looked at, uh, we, we've taken basically some comments uh, that some of these occupants um, have have made in terms of how they're negotiating with uh, with CBL to, to extract value on their side. Um, what are some of the things that um, these, uh, these retailers are saying? Sure. So uh, Asina Retail Group, which is one of CBL's uh, largest tenants. They own the brands Ann Taylor, Lane Bryant, and they made up about 2.3% of CBL's 2017 revenue. And their CEO said on a call earlier this year that uh, essentially planned to threaten to close stores under smaller landlords absent rent cuts. And quote, uh, it's very easy to get a landlord and say, here's what we need. If we don't get the rent down to this level, we're going to have to close because we know the impact of closing that store, end quote. And another one, Signet Jewelers, which made up uh, nearly 3% of CBL's 2017 revenue, said they plan to close over 200 stores in fiscal 2019. And the CEO said that the company would be opportunistic with what the real estate market provides in terms of rent reductions and store relocations. And these definitely aren't the only two guys. You're seeing it kind of as a trend across uh, tenants and the retail space broadly. Great. So that's that's really interesting. Um, but let's go to a, a live example of a, of a name that we cover, uh, Claire Stores, which many of you remember is a name that we uh, covered a, a few weeks ago on on the podcast as a bankruptcy that's that's in flux, a lot of fighting going on. But um, that aside, Josh, if you could just you know, tell us about what's happening operationally with them. Um, you know, how are they um, handling things in terms of um, stores extracting value and, and basically how they use the, how are they gonna use the bankruptcy to, um, to do this? Sure, Mark. So obviously retail and specifically mall retail has been tough over the past few years. And you can see that in, in Claire's where from the end of fiscal 2013 to their petition date, which was March 19th of this year, they closed more than 500 stores, which represented something like 17% of their fiscal 2013 store base. Um, but Claire's is interesting. Unlike many other retailers, they're, they're not closing most of their stores. They're definitely planning to close some through the bankruptcy process, but nowhere near the levels that we've seen some of the other retailers who end up slashing half their stores or end up liquidating. And the company filed uh, with roughly 2,600 stores. And according to their projections, they plan to cut to around 2,300 over the next five years, which is about 10% of their store base, 
So again, certainly not as aggressive as some of the other bankruptcy case cases that we've seen. And on top of the stores that Claire's is planning on closing, the company has said many times that it's negotiating with landlords across the board for rent concessions, which uh, it expects could save Claire's about $30 million per annum. And, uh, and that's really one of the like cool things about, you know, I mean, that's the advantage that you have having filed for bankruptcy, right, is Claire's can come in and say, actually, we have the right to walk away from these leases because of our rights as a bankrupt right. tenant versus someone, you know, JCP, obviously not filed for bankruptcy, their ability to negotiate is, is as we're kind of going to talk about in a little bit, a little bit more restricted. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a great point. And what's especially interesting about Claire's is it, they kind of give us a look into another potential uh, drawback for mall REITs such as CBL in, in the terms of the concessions business. And the concessions business is essentially many stores or uh, displays within another store. So, um, for example, over the, the past three fiscal years, where there's malls or just general store base has dropped significantly, as I mentioned, that 17% number, their concession stores have skyrocketed from 20 in fiscal 2013 to about 4,500 as of the petition date. And that's essentially Claire's attempting to offset the declines in uh, foot traffic in the malls. And they're not stopping there. They, they're planning to be really aggressive with this concession strategy. They, they said that they plan to be in roughly 4,000 CVS locations alone in 2018. So that kind of gives companies like Claire's another bargaining chip against their uh, mall landlords. That's really interesting. Um, and, you know, I actually, I, I saw a, another release from Radio Shack, which is a name that, uh, you know, we used, we used to cover before. Their, their bankruptcy, they said that they're opening up 100 uh, store within stores and other operators, too. So it's, it's both a bargaining chip and it also shows you that there's additional life for these, uh, these retailers uh, that are at least in the center of the mall, um, which then brings us to the, the anchors or the, um, the department stores um, in the malls. You, know, you, you also cover uh, JCPenney, um, Bonton. You know, what's happening to their store base? Sure, uh, let me start with Bonton. I guess that's the easier answer, they're, they're liquidating. Um, earlier this year, they ran an auction process and ended up uh, agreeing to liquidate their uh, roughly 250 stores and four distribution centers. And actually about 40 of those stores were already in the process of being liquidated uh, pre-petition based on uh, you know, a store closure announcement that came prior to bankruptcy. And the rest of the roughly 210 stores uh, began liquidating on April 20th. And I think that process is expected to take about 10 to 12 weeks. So it should be finishing up right about now. Uh, Bonton was a huge, was a huge CBL tenant. Um, so, so they actually, CBL took a reserve uh, for, its fi- for, for this year to try and work through and is still kind of trying to work through what its strategy is to deal with space that it knows, you know, as you've said, as Bonton kind of finishes up the last legs of its, its liquidation sales, it's no, it knows that's going to be empty space that it, that it has to fill. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, that's one, that's one where, where the company's been very 
forthright in saying, you know, this is, you know, the Bonton was kind of a big blow for us. But, they, you know, as they said, the one advantage they do have is is they knew that Bonton was kind of, there was a very high potential for, for a liquidation there. Which actually, you know, brings us to an, another point. You know, Nick, um, you had talked about this in your initiation story, you know, why it's so important to fill up those spaces um, that uh, those those department stores or those anchors um, hold. Uh, you know, uh, one um, term you used is the uh, the co-tenancy clauses. Um, could you explain, um, you know, that to us a little bit? Yeah, so it, it, it kind of ties back to, to what Yash was just talking about, right? So once Claire's has filed for bankruptcy, we should distinguish, right, between Something like Claire's, which has a lot of small footprint stores and is not considered an anchor, and someone like Bonton or, or JCP that is is one of these kind of anchor tenants for a CBL mall. So Claire's has filed for bankruptcy, and and as as we kind of discussed, it has this right uh, under Chapter Eleven to reject its leases to go to CBL and say, hey, you know, we're walking away uh, from a given lease. Uh, and and you can assert damages against us. You'll have an unsecured claim. If you look at JCP or uh, or imagine you know any one of these smaller specialty stores in CBL malls, they uh, don't have the ability contractually in most cases to go to CBL and say uh, you know we want to renegotiate the terms of our lease. They have to wait for that lease to expire. But one key out that they do have. Uh, in many of their leases, and, and, and CBL is, is uh, quite, uh, uh, they, they don't give a lot of, of detail as to the context of these co-tenancy leases, but all of their tenants have the ability, or many of their tenants, I should say, have the ability under their lease contracts, if the anchor store in a mall walks away to say, you know, we want to now also have the right to walk away from our lease. So that, that sets up, I think, a, an interesting issue for CBL in that it's really, really important uh, to maintain their anchor stores in their malls. Um, so I think a great quote, uh, kind of an amusing quote from CBL management was, uh, with respect to these co-tenancy clauses, said, you know, no, this is not something that investors should be worried about as long as we're able to replace anchor tenants when we need to interesting one because you know as as we're kind of talking about here a lot of the big anchor tenants in cbl malls are uh suffering from some level of of store closures of distress yeah and then yash i think i cut you off cut you off before um jcp you know what what are what's happening to them in terms of their stores right i mean they're certainly not uh as close to the deathbed as bonton uh is or, or was um but in 2017 they closed 140 stores. Um, they started the year with a little bit over a thousand, um, and in 2018 they're expecting to close only eight. So at least for the near term, maybe J.C. Penney feels like they've kind of come to a steady state. But who knows what that's going to look like in 2019 or, or 2020? Um, but I, I think what's interesting about J.C. Penney is that they're employing strategies to kind of revamp their retail space, which you're kind of seeing in malls more broadly where retail is being replaced with experiences or restaurants, et cetera. So JCPenney's opening up a bunch of Sephora's, they have been and are planning to, uh, within their own stores, they're um, similarly with salons, they essentially want to drive foot traffic to the stores with 
other um, aspects other than just shopping. And also, I think a really interesting one is that they've aggressively been expanding their home and appliances segment, which uh, might be driving certain customers away from the likes of Sears and Home Depot, because now at JCPenney, you can shop for your kids, you can buy perfume, and you can you know, buy your washing machines all in the same place. So they said that they've seen some success with this strategy and are planning to continue aggressively expanding. And and that you know brings us back to CBL also, which is which, which is also forced to change the traditional mall, I guess, um, in response to some of these closures, right. right? Right. No, exactly. So so that's kind of the buzzword, right? Is is uh, how can we make going to the mall not about just a retail strategy, but kind of this experiential thing. Um, so that's, uh, I think we can, uh, that's, that's a great segue into kind of what CBL is doing, again, to, similar to JCP, kind of be a little bit inventive about how to deal with some of these issues. Um, so, so certainly the, the, the big, I think the big uh, targets for them are, are one, kind of reducing reliance on uh, the historical anchor tenants, the Sears, the Macy's, the JCPenney's of the world and switching instead to kind of the uh, experience, experiential uh, options. I have a really fun one this week, uh, actually an old Bonton store. Bonton uh, is is exiting a, the Westmoreland Mall, which is a CBL mall, and uh, they've just received consent from the state legislature uh, to uh, turn that space into a casino. So, so anything that they can find to do to, to kind of, as as Yash said, uh, drive foot traffic. I think they're trying. Um, the the other big things that they're pushing forward with are are um, reducing. You know, just kind of the obvious one is okay. We have tier one, tier two, and tier three malls, and trying to kind of move up the move up the quality curve there a little bit. Uh, there at least seems to be some consensus that uh, you know the the, the better assets. Uh, are going to have, you know, I guess somewhat obviously uh, a better, um, better long-term uh, prospects. Uh, and then another interesting uh, strategy that they're pursuing and, and really trying to highlight is that they claim that they're predominantly, quote, single asset locations. So what that means is um, essentially that they think, you know, they have a competitive advantage when the CBL mall is the only game in town when, you know, so they say on average, the ACBL mall is 20, uh, I believe it's 22 miles from its nearest competitor, right? You don't want to be in a situation where in this type of environment, you have uh, competition just around the corner. And, and Nick, what else, you know, are, are they doing that? It, you actually talked about having to dig into their own pockets, right? To save some of these spaces. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we can kind of think through this life cycle, right? Of you have an anchor tenant, CBL management is saying, hey, it's not a big deal as long as we kind of maintain this anchor tenancy or replace the anchor tenant. We don't have the co tenancy issue. You know, we don't have the dying mall issue uh, and people will keep coming to coming to the malls. The key point there is that they need to find someone to step in and, and take the uh, space of that anchor tenant. Uh, so, what, what the company is doing to uh, uh, try and kind of help this process along is being, I think, quite aggressive on uh, buying back malls from the Sears of the world and then trying to redevelop them. So in one recent example of this, right, they've bought back two malls from Sears Auto Development 
and uh, I just have to pull my notes here. So they bought back uh, two models from from Sears Auto develop uh, from Sears Auto and are redeveloping that space as a Panda Express, and then uh, the second one is a Bonefish Grill, uh, Casual Pint, and Metro Diner. And and the 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 obviously the, there's a cost to this, right? And and the cost kind of falls on CBL to uh, invest. Uh, essentially put capital back into the mall to turn what used to be a, a uh, retail experience into this experiential kind of restaurant, whatever you may uh, call it. So just to put some numbers around that, because um, I, I think it's important to understand when we look at the space as a whole, uh, it's really, really a, a relatively low capital expenditure business. So uh, CBL spent about $200 million last year in, quote, additions to its real estate assets. Um, that's kind of a reasonable proxy, in our opinion, for uh, CapEx. And that's on uh, funds from operations of about uh, $430 million. So, so not an insignificant amount. But of that $200 million, uh, 65% was spent on developments, redevelopments, and expansions. 35% was spent on CapEx. And to take that further, of that $70 million in maintenance CapEx, uh, that 35%, only uh, about 25 million of that was core maintenance capex that CBL actually had to spend to keep its malls up to scratch. So really the predominant uh, majority of, I should say the, the, just the majority of that 200 million is money that CBL is pouring into these redevelopments. Um, and that's what they kind of to go full cycle here when uh, Bonton walks away, when Claire's closes stores, they need to find a way to keep those occupancy rates high. So you, we can kind of go full circle and say, not only are they really cutting their rent, but they're actually pouring money back into these malls to try and, I think, redevelop them uh, and, and keep these occupancy rates up. It's really interesting, especially when you think about CBL as a REIT. You know, that definitely affects the business model, uh, for sure, and, and, and how cash flows uh Right, right. So, so they're they're doing that, and and also uh, somehow still paying out a pretty uh, pretty hefty dividend. Um, so uh, we certainly think it's it's one to watch and uh, uh, kind of see how this uh, you know where the company cuts costs if they continue to see the top line uh, uh, trend uh, under a little bit of stress. Great, thanks. Uh, we'll definitely be watching that one for sure. Uh, Nick, Yash, um, this has been great. Thank you very much for uh, for taking us on a tour of uh, retail. Karen, back to you. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg.